All right, we are in Acts chapter six, and we're actually uh, gonna be trying to move through quite a bit of scripture tonight, so sorry for starting a little late here. Tonight's sermon is called History Repeats Itself. And so with that, we'll just jump right in. Acts chapter six and verse one. It says, now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were ne- neglected in the daily distribution. So there's obviously good news and bad news here. The disciples are multiplying daily, which is incredible and good news, but obviously the complaint, and this kind of happens with growth, right? And it happens with any sort of community, even in Christian community, as we grow, there's becomes these separations or disputes or complaints and that's what's happening here between it says the Hellenists and the Hebrews. So Hellenists are, you're also hearing them called Hellenistic Jews, they're just Greek-speaking Jews or uh, Jews that grew up in a Greek town. So they're still Jewish but they are kind of like we talked about last week where there's kind of a, there became these like separations in the temple. They built these walls and said like Gentiles aren't allowed any farther than this. Women aren't allowed any farther than this. And these separations sort of happened in Judaism and it sort of carried over into the Christian church too where somehow you were, you were lesser. You were not as pure if you were if Judaism or, or if Hebrew wasn't your first language, right? Your first language is Greek. You, you know, you grew up hearing and reading the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, and they were sort of viewed as lesser. So this community started, and uh, there was some complaints of unfairness where the widows feel like they're not getting like the, the widows of the Hellenists are not getting the same money or food that was being distributed to the Jews. Uh, verse 2 says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. What we're going to see here is some delegation that the apostles do and something that is sort of a smaller theme in the Bible, but it is a theme is that Delegating is it is a, a good thing. It is a work of God, especially in ministry. It's a responsible thing. It's uh, something that is loving to the whole congregation. It shows that you're paying attention to the, the needs of the people. And it makes sure that leaders don't get distracted or burnt out. So uh, the reason I say it's loving to the whole congregation is because what can happen is a leader sees these issues, sees these, hears these complaints, and they want to be involved, right? They're attentive to the people's needs, and so they try and deal with it personally, and it kind of pulls them away from the ministry and from the calling that God has already gave them. We see that in the life of Moses, where he is doing the same thing, right? He leads people into the wilderness, he, he, but he gets them away from, the, from Egypt. They are free, but all of a sudden these disputes start coming up and he feels like he has to deal with each of them individually. And all these people are bringing all this kind of stuff, no matter how small it is. Like, oh, this person gave me a weird look and like now they, you know, everyone's treating me weird. And Moses is just sitting there like trying to figure out life. And then his father-in-law comes and says, you need 
to set up judges where for these small disputes the judges can deal with that if it's a little too big for them they can go to another judge and they can sort of deal with issues below them and then if it gets really bad then they can come to you Moses and that kind of weeds out these sort of small disputes or, or distracting things where a lot of the time it's the same people coming up with the same type of things and it's just like it's distracting and it's pulling you away from the ministry. So you set up these people and you set up delegation and it's a work of God to keep the leaders leading but still being attentive to the people. And we saw this when we looked at Gamliel that he didn't want to get off his high seat. He didn't care what the apostles said. He didn't want to go and hear what Jesus was saying. He liked his high seat and he's going to sit, sit up here and just tell the people what to do and not, really not be attentive with, to what they need or or are doing at all. But the apostles are intimately involved in the people's lives and they're seeing them each day, they're hearing these issues and they want to help, but they realize that if they do it personally, it's gonna pull them away from their ministry. So what they do in verse three, it says, therefore brethren, this is the apostles speaking, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicaera, Timon, Parmesius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So here we again seeing uh, the people being chosen and them being prayed for and empowered to do this ministry. Verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So here we meet Stephen, the first mentioned deacon and this is where the the ministry of deacons is sort of set up and started and it continues through the ministry and it continues to this day and some things about Stephen that it mentions just right here he's a man full of wisdom faith full of the Holy Spirit full of grace and full of power and that is some amazing qualifications obviously right but he wasn't great by any sort of worldly standard, right? Was he a great man? Like, yeah, for sure he was a great man. But why was he great? These qualifications that it says about Stephen, these, again, amazing things, full of wisdom, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power. These are just merely Christian things. We're all called to have these things in our lives and to be filled with these things. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He was a faithful man. He was a gracious man. He was filled with wisdom and filled with the Holy Spirit and endowed with power by that Holy Spirit. So my prayer is that this would be said of all of us, right? We would be this type of person, that we would be filled with these same types of things. This is our calling, and this is what we should be striving to be filled with. And the great thing about this is this is not too lofty a thing for us to strive for. This is not something that's like, that's way beyond, I can never be these things. It's like, no, this is, again, just the calling to be a good Christian. And if this is who you are, if this is who people see you to be and who 
the Holy Spirit makes you to be, God will use you. If this is what you're filled with, all of these things that I just mentioned, if these five things that I mentioned, if those are what you're filled with, God will for sure use you and most likely in huge and amazing ways, the way he used Stephen as we're going to see. Uh, Stephen was an ordinary man until he, he met God and had faith in Jesus and he was transformed into this great and godly man and, and a man who, who wasn't afraid to answer the call that the church gave him and do more than that and, and do what God was calling him to do. He didn't just stay within the station that the church gave him. And Johnny has spoken about this before where people complain like, oh, the church isn't like releasing me to do my ministry. And it's like, well, if you have a ministry that God has given you, do that ministry. Like you don't need some church to give you some title so you feel better about yourself. Like do what God is calling you to do. Stephen is given the duty of taking care of the widows, making sure there's fairness among the people. The distribution isn't being, you know, sort of altered and polluted. He's like, make sure, making sure that everybody's basically loving each other. That's what he's doing. But his, his calling goes a lot farther than that because God gave him a higher calling than just the station that the church gave him. He was a deacon. He was there to serve the people so that the leaders can continue spreading the word of God. But as we're going to see, and as we see already in the verses we've already read, the word is being spread even more because of what he's doing. Uh, and it says that in verse uh, 7, that the word of God was spread and the number of d- disciples multiplied greatly because he's doing the duty that the church gave him. And so the apostles are able to continue their ministry. So what's happening here is the kingdom of God is being furthered and Stephen is taking care of the people of God. So more people are coming in. That's what the apostles work. And this is like an amazing, cool way to see how the body of of Christ works, where you're doing your duty, but it's making sure that other people can, you, you doing what you are called to do is actually making sure that other people can do their job as well. So he's serving the people. The apostles are bringing more people in for him to serve. And what we're about to see is uh, there's a proverb in Proverbs 18. It says, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. And these gifts that were given to Stephen here, wisdom, faith, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being filled with grace, being filled with power. These are gifts of the Holy Spirit, but it brings him before great men. And it says here in verse 7, that many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is where I said last week that we could have some hope for Gamaliel. This is the verse where it gives me a little bit of hope that, you know, in in the last chapter, he wasn't necessarily like sticking up for them because he had faith in Jesus, you know, but here we see that there's hope that maybe he did get off his high seat. Maybe he did go hear what the apostles were saying. Maybe he did become convinced and become obedient to the faith and be a part of the Christian church. And that's my hope and prayer. And maybe we'll meet him in heaven one day. Uh, Verse nine says, then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. 
and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So the Holy Spirit is filling him up and filling him with wisdom. And these people are starting arguments with him. And they're not able to resist the wisdom that God has is given them. The, the synagogue of the freedmen, I did a little bit of research on this. And this is a quote from Matthew Henry, who uh, is a, a prominent Christian writer and commentator. And he says that Rome called those liberti or libertini who either being foreigners were naturalized or being slaves by birth were made free. So what we see is, especially at the end of the story, we're going to meet Saul, who we will we know as Paul and who wrote much of the New Testament. He was likely the guy who was leading this group, leading this argument with Stephen. He was probably the guy. He was definitely part of this group here, as we'll see as, as we meet him. But he is likely the one who is spearheading this argument with Stephen. As we know, Paul was a very educated man. He was a very smart man. And we see once he is saved, all of that stuff is redeemed. And he sort of, everything clicks. All the information he had is in his head. He realizes what it actually is and what it actually means. And he preaches the word, but he, he's, he's not one to shy away from disputing. So before he meets Jesus, he has this moment where he's disputing with Stephen. He is coming against Stephen. And in verse uh, 11, and again also, as we see, Stephen is serving specifically the Hellenists. That's, what, that's why he got his ministry. He's serving other people also, but he's going to Greek-speaking Jews who, that's basically what we're talking about here these types of people that they mentioned. These are people from the, they were, during the exiles, they were born in Greece, these Greek towns, they, were, they grew up speaking Greek, but they were still Jews, many of them. Some of them were Gentiles, but most of them were just Greek-speaking Jews. So while Stephen is serving these people, probably their family members are coming against them like, hey, and they're trying to start these arguments, and Stephen is refuting them, and they're not able to resist. Verse 11 says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. We're back at the Sanhedrin. They also set up false witnesses and said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the Holy place and the law. So the accusation against Stephen comes and it's for blasphemy. This is the same charge that was given to Christ and it, specifically the blasphemy was against God, against Moses, against the law, and against the temple. These are the, the charges that they're bringing against Stephen. And verse 15 says, And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him, so they're staring at Stephen, they saw his face as the face of an angel. What does the face of an angel look like? Well, I'll let the commentators argue about that. Some say it was glowing. Some people say other things. What you see in the Bible is the face of an angel isn't often described. In some visions, it's, you know, the head of a lion or an eagle. And most of the time, though, angels just look like men. They just look like guys. So how was his face like the face of an angel? Well, normally when people saw an angel, 
they pretty much knew it was an angel and they fell and and started worshiping like holy cow so what i would say is maybe it wasn't glowing but there was absolutely no fear in him it was a commanding face it was a calm face and it was a face that should have been intimidated but wasn't and that's how I sort of see Stephen standing before the council standing before the Sanhedrin all these people coming against him and saying all these wicked things and he's just standing there relaxed and ready to speak for God as an angel would be Verse 1 here says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? Stephen's response is a sermon. <laughs> he, he basically says, I hear the, what's being brought against me. Why don't I just tell you what I've been saying? I'll preach the same sermon to you and you can tell me about these accusations. That's basically what his response is. He just goes right into a sermon. And his sermon, his points are, are pretty simple. And I, I broke it down into these three points. He says, here's how we got to where we are geographically as a people. Like, here's where we got here. Number two, here's how we got to where we are as a religion. Right? Here's how that was set up. Here's how the temple was set up. Here's how the law was established. Like this place that we're standing in, here's how we got here. Number three, here's how we get beyond that. Here's God's plan to get us past just our culture and our religion. God has a plan to get us past these things. And his final thing that he says, his call to action is, uh, you as a people and a religion are rejecting that final point. How to get beyond this temporal thing into the kingdom of God. You're rejecting God's plan and you're rejecting his people. You're rejecting the very foundation upon which our people and our religion are founded. You're rejecting the entire foundation. And it's nothing new. That's basically his call to action. You're basically doing what our people have been doing forever. So I'm going to read his sermon. It's a long one. Like I said, we got some scripture to get through. I'm just going to read the whole thing so you can get it in its context. So sit back, relax, uh, enjoy the read. It's uh, verses 2 through 60. <laughs> I would love to. If so, Does anyone like to read out loud? Awesome. Yeah. Is everyone willing to read? Yeah. Sure. Great. How many verses? Like 10? Let's go. Uh, the first reader can go. Well, there's six of us. We can each do 10 verses. 10 verses. Oh, that's. There's 60 verses? Great Whoa. job, Anne. Well, it's two verses, two through 60. Uh, oh. Oh, someone gets chipped. <laughs> I'll get chipped. <laughs> yeah. I'll end. So, John, you want to start? Okay. I have a different version yeah, we than I know. It's great. All right. Okay, this is Stephen's reply. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come to the land I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land which he now lived. But God gave him no inheritance here, 
not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they'd be oppressed as slaves for 400 years, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said, and in the end they will come out and worship me here in this place. God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob, and when Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs of the Israelite nation. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with them, and rescued him from his troubles, and God gave him favor before Pharaoh king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom, so the Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought, had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then, at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, and in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for forty years. 
This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts returned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us, for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, and images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place for my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked... That's me. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's the history lesson and now the call to action. Mm-hmm. Stephen says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as our fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Mm-hmm. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. You have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the quick and raged, cut to the quick, cut to the heart. We talked about this in in previous sermons. And they gnashed their teeth at him with uh, gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, "Look, I see the heavens opened." And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. You can just imagine them running at him with their hands over their ears. And ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, 
he fell asleep, which really means he died. Oh, he fell asleep. Yeah. Hey, God answered that prayer for Saul. <sighs> yeah, right. That's a good catch. He did answer that for Saul. Stephen uh, spends the majority of his time speaking about Moses. And, and mm-hmm. the reason why is that Moses prophesied, as many of the other prophets did, but Moses specifically prophesied about one who would come who would be like him. And Stephen is saying, this prophecy has been fulfilled. One like Moses has come. Not in a reincarnation way, he didn't come and as Moses, but the prophet that Moses prophesied that would be like him came. Mm. And there are some yeah. similarities yes. between Moses and Jesus. That's real. I've never thought of it that way. Yeah. In like the depth of, uh, like, you know how a lot of the Jews are saying, oh, the Messiah is like an actual government authority figure when Moses inherited it and he was just a Hebrew but he got it as you know as being the deliverer yeah that's how he got his status and yeah it's just like I never I'm like putting it together more of like that's the that's the kicker for the Jews is is realizing that Moses was the symbolic act yeah and that's why I wanted you guys to hear the sermon in its fullest, because you see the whole history, which they're like nodding their heads, yeah, we know this, we know this. And then he gets to the end, and he smacks him over the head with it. Yeah. And so, like I said, there's some similarities between Moses and Christ, right? This, this Christ who came, this one, this prophet that Moses prophesied about, that would be like Moses, came. One who speaks the very words of God, like Moses did. One who has come to set his people free, mm-hmm. not from a nation and from physical f- slavery, but from the slavery of sin and death and Satan, and even from freedom from God's wrath, salvation from the very wrath of God. Yeah, and Moses did that too a lot. Yeah, Moses did <laughs> so that. And Jesus came <laughs> in that likeness. One who fulfills the promises of God to the Jews. And Christ came not only fulfilling the promises to the Jews, but to the entire world. And again, Moses did that as well, where he was saying, we include travelers and foreigners and people who want to worship the one true God, right? Moses did that. Christ, through his his death and his resurrection and, and all of that stuff, he... He really brought the whole world into the promise, as we, as we have learned and, and know. But Christ is also like Moses in that he was disregarded, unappreciated by the very people he's there to serve. And ultimately, he's disobeyed. And even though he speaks with the very authority of God the Father himself, his words are still neglected and cast aside and his prophets that come after him the apostles much like the prophets that came after Moses are persecuted and they seek to kill him there is a likeness between Moses and Jesus Mm -hmm. and Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses and of the prophecy that Moses gave there is 
a ton to study on this topic. <laughs> and I've done a, a series before where I just focused in on the Exodus and the Christian life and those similarities. And if you guys want to dig kind of deep into that on your own study, there's 1 Corinthians 10, Hebrews 3 and 4, which we looked at a little bit, I think it was last week. There's also John 6. These parallels are drawn between the time of the Exodus and the Christian life. How people were set free from captivity enter into baptism by going through the Red Sea. They go into this wilderness where they're trying to figure life out and they get to the promised land, right? They get to the promise of salvation. And as Hebrew says, they didn't fully enter the rest because there was still work to do. There were still fights to fight. There was still evil to get rid of in their lives, even though they had gotten to the promised land, right? And there was still a rest to seek just as we are still seeking our full rest, which is the ultimate glorification. There's a lot to study there, and we can talk more about that at different time. But the point is, history repeats itself. Right? Yeah. Similar things happen to Moses. Similar things happen to Christ. Similar things happen to the Israelites that are happening now in our Christian life, spiritually. And Stephen says... Which of the prophets did you not persecute? Right. And history repeats itself. Mm -hmm. Right then and there. And right before they kill Stephen, he sees this incredibly amazing vision. And, and throughout this whole series and the last series as well, I've really laid an emphasis on where Jesus is right now. Right? He died... He rose again. He spent 40 days with 500 people proclaiming truth. And then he ascended. And where is he right now? Where, right now? Right now. Where is Jesus? Oh, where Jesus is in heaven, heaven but right also... Hand. God's right hand. Yeah. Over. He's on the right hand. That's it. Yeah. Over and over and over throughout the New Testament, we're told that he is seated at the right hand of God. He ascended into heaven and he sat on his rightful throne at the right hand of God and he is right now ruling and reigning as he should be. I like how it says the earth is his footstool. Yeah. Like heaven's my throne, earth is my footstool. Yeah, it's Satan's, but my foot's on him. Yeah, and what it's Stephen like, is saying you know, in that moment is because one of the accusations, he's, he's blaspheming against this holy temple. And Stephen's basically saying, God doesn't need a temple. Yeah. The earth is his footstool. Yeah. Yeah, because since the devil bruised his heel, he used to get a bruised heel. Smash! Yeah. <laughs> basically, yeah. 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 So Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But the amazing vision that Stephen sees is in verse 55. It says, but he, Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Over and over and over, he's seated at the right hand of God. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's on his rightful throne. But Stephen sees him standing in a moment where Stephen is boldly speaking the word of God proclaiming the truth that Jesus is the Christ, rebuking evil, but with the hope that his hearers 
will be saved. And in that moment, Jesus stands up. Jesus is watching. This is a a powerful moment and a powerful thought to consider that when we do these things that Stephen is doing, Christ is watching. Mm -hmm. He's rooting for us. He's offended at the things that are coming against us. But he's there and he's watching and he's waiting for us. There's some similarities also, right? History repeats itself between Christ's trial and Stephen's and between Christ's martyrdom and Stephen's. People always say that Stephen was the first martyr. Um, Jesus was the first martyr of Christianity. (laughs) And many have followed in his footsteps, but uh, there are some similarities here. They are both falsely accused of blasphemy. They are both given a chance to recant their stance. Publicly, visibly, emphatically, in John chapter 10, the same council, the same Sanhedrin, just months before this, right? Maybe six months or maybe a year before this. They bring Jesus to the council and they say, Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? He refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is, and Stephen refers to him as the Son of Man in this passage we just read. And that that phrase, Son of Man, comes from Daniel about a prophecy of the Christ. And that was Jesus' sort of favorite name for himself. He called himself the Son of Man, I forget how many times, but over and over again, that was his name for himself. And in that moment where they confront him, give him a chance to back down. He calls himself the son of man. He says he's the good shepherd, which is another fulfillment of what the Christ would be. He says, you're not my sheep because my sheep know my voice and they answer my call. And he goes further and says, I and my father are one. And he sets himself up publicly, visibly, emphatically, that he is Lord and Savior, that he is God and Christ. That is what he says. A lot of people try and say, oh, Jesus never said he was God. Yeah, he did. Jesus never said he was Christ. Yes, over and over again, he did. So he's given this chance to recant. So is Stephen, and they don't. They stand firm. They speak truth in love, and they stand there calmly, ready to speak the word of God. They stand confident in the faithfulness of God, and even in the presence of their murderers, knowing that that will likely happen. Stephen isn't a a dumb man. Like I said, this is mere months after the same thing happened to Jesus. He knows what they're capable of. He knows what they've done. He knows what they're willing to do. And he calls them murderers. He calls them people who have gone astray from the word of God. They thought they had it all figured out. He's saying, you have neglected the word of God. They both, Jesus and Stephen, rebuke the religious leaders of that time in the name of God. They both ultimately are murdered for just simply doing the work of God. 
And as Christ is dying, being murdered for being the perfect son of God, for saying he's the Christ, saying he's God, he cries out, Father God, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And finally, Jesus says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And Stephen follows in his Savior's footsteps. He does exactly what Christ did in the moment that he's being killed. He's dying. They're throwing massive stones at his head, trying to kill him, making sure that he is going to be dead. And he commits his spirit to Jesus in the end, our Lord and our Savior. And he asks that his murderers will be forgiven. And as Jasmine pointed out, God answers that prayer. Mm-hmm. Saul, the very man who was leading the fight against Stephen, ends up being a great man of God who furthers the kingdom of God and writes so much scripture. We might not have people who are trying to actually physically murder us. A lot of time we try and think like, oh, we don't have any enemies. Like, I get along with everybody. Everybody gets along with me. And Johnny and I and Anthony were recently talking about, like, the idea of enemies is not properly taught. Like, you, do, you might not want to think that you have enemies, but you do. There are people in your life who they position themselves against you. They might not be trying to murder you, but they resist you at every point. They talk about you behind your back. They think negatively towards you. At every turn, they're opposing you and trying to hold you back. They, they make sure not to give you compliments because they don't want you to feel good about yourself. They, you know, tell people other things so that your reputation will be torn down. You have enemies. You might not know it and you might not be aware of it and maybe you don't even want to think about it, but you do. And Jesus tells you to love them. And Jesus did love his enemies. He asked for his murderers to be forgiven. And here we see Stephen doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Final note that I have is that the name Stephen, as you know, is my own. It means crowned one. And most of you probably know I have a crown of thorns tattooed on my arm here, and that's part of the reason. My name is Stephen, and I am a crowned one. Just as Stephen the deacon here He's crowned, and every Christian is crowned. But we wear a different-looking crown on this earth. We wear one of thorns, as our king did, in this world. It's not always easy, especially if we stand for Christ. We will get persecuted, we'll make more enemies, and it's going to hurt. We will bleed, we will wear that crown that our king wore. But in the end, if we, as Hebrews says... Hold the beginning of our conscience to the end, right? If we run that good race and we stay faithful, we will trade that crown of thorns in in the end and will receive the crown of glory, as Stephen did. And when he fell asleep, he opened his eyes to Jesus holding a crown to give him. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, I just want to thank you so much for... for sending Jesus to be such an amazing sort of unsuspected Savior, God. He came in a humble way, in a way that would tear down the proud, God. 
and I thank you for loving us so much to to send Jesus to be that sacrifice to fulfill so much it, it, it would be impossible for anybody to try and fill those shoes but Jesus came and because of you and him and the Holy Spirit working together everything was fulfilled and everything happened the way it should have happened and I thank you so much for that power that uh, lived in Jesus that rose him from the dead and that now lives in us God I pray that you will fill us with that spirit as you filled Stephen fill us with wisdom fill us with faithfulness help us to be reliable people fill us with grace that we would be more loving people and God I pray that you would empower us Fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit and help us to do the job that you have us to do. Whatever that may be, whether it's serving widows or giving to the poor or going into other nations and telling people about you. Or maybe it's just teaching people within the church who you are and furthering their ministry, God. Whatever that ministry looks like that you have us to do, I pray that you would empower us to do it. Give us boldness to speak when there are opportunities. Help us to look for those opportunities and not back down even when opposition comes, God. We love you and we praise you and I pray that you will bless the rest of this evening and bless our fellowship together in Jesus' name. Amen.